before we get going, you may notice that there's a whole lot of cards and the chairs in front of you. Uh, one of those things is called a connection card. And this is our way of getting to know who you are and that you've attended here. Uh, it's also your way of communicating to us any prayer needs that you might have or anything that you need to bring to our attention. Please take some time during my message and fill that out. There's a box at the back. You can drop it in on your way out or you can put it in the offering. Well, I guess you can't do that now. Uh, but put it in the box on the way out or hand it to me. That would be great. By the way, uh, please fill one of those things out. Also, you may notice this wonderful wall of red and green that is kind of casing us in up here. Uh, this is collection week for Operation Christmas Child, so if you've done some boxes and you want to bring them in and you forgot to do it today or you're worried or you want to do it this week or you want to start a new box this week, you have this week to get it done. Uh, you can bring it any, any day this week between 4 and 7 or, I mean, if you're really bad and you're really late, I mean, we probably need to take it. Uh, but if you're feeling like you would even want to help out a little bit, we still need some more people that can come to the church between 4 and 7 and check boxes in and help people and do all that stuff. Uh, so there's a sign-up list out in the, the cafe there. If you're interested in doing something like that, we can really help. All right. That's everything I had to say. Now, yes, that's right. Now the sermon. <laughs> Have you ever felt just a little too comfortable have you ever been with some friends and, and there's someone with you that's just a little too comfortable being there? And they'll say something or they'll do something that's just a little off and it's way too much for the, the situation that they're in, but yet they think that it's okay because they're really comfortable where they are? Just recently I was meeting with a friend and uh, we had a great conversation all that stuff and we went for coffee and I was going home and he was going home. And so I walked out to my car and he followed me. And just hopped in the car expecting me to drive him home. Because he was very comfortable with the idea that I would just give him a ride. <laughs> he hadn't asked, I didn't offer, and, but okay, so I, I got in the car and we, we drove him home. All because he was a little too comfortable. Friends do this with us all the time. I've had people in my home that just go over to my fridge and just start eating things out of it. And okay, I didn't really prearrange that. You're comfortable, that's fine, let's go for it. Sometimes we come across things that are a little too familiar, and we get a little too comfortable with them, and we miss the truth about the situation. Think about a stop sign, for instance. Okay, now, let's be honest, with your own driving skills, do you ever come to a stop sign and not do it appropriately? I mean, under the law, we're, we're supposed to stop a meter back from the stop line. All your wheels are supposed to come to a complete stop. You're supposed to allow all the traffic, pedestrian and otherwise, to clear out of the intersection, and then you can proceed if it's safe to do so. Right? If you're not the first person there, you let the other people go first, and then you go. Does everybody do that? No. Not even close, right? Probably even on the way here this morning, some of you just kind of rolled down to 20 and then roared right on through, you know? Or you wait for that person to get about three quarters of the way through the crosswalk, and then it's like, and just go right past them, letting them know that you, or that they've inconvenienced you a little bit, right? Stop signs we get very, very familiar with, especially if it's in a, a block that you live on, or it's a corner that you come to all the time. You'll roll up to that stop sign, and you know exactly how much traffic is going to be there. So sometimes we just ignore those things completely and make up our own rules, because we're far too comfortable with what we believe we know, and we miss the truth of the situation. Believe it or not, stop signs exist to both protect us from ourselves 
and protect other people from us as well. It's meant to keep us safe. We're supposed to stop and allow all the traffic clear so we don't run people over or we don't get hit. And that's why those things are there. And when we pull up and just believe we know what we're doing, we miss the truth of that. And I am a culprit of that type of thing as well. I'm a bit of an aggressive driver, and I really, you know, by the grace of God, I need to relax behind the wheel because I can let road rage just take me over. But this happens a lot with, with all kinds of things. Think about passages of Scripture that are very, very famous. How many times have you ever heard the verse John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible? Thousands of times, probably. And yet, if we don't take the time to think about those verses, we can miss some very important truths. Christmas is coming up. How many times have you heard the Christmas story? Probably a lot, right? And yet, we can still miss truths that are there. It's funny, in youth group, we're going through the book of Exodus, and I'm teaching about um, Moses and the Israelites. And it's amazing how many students think that they know that story, and think that they know it very well, because it's been in pop culture, it's been in movies, um, they've been taught that in Sunday school since they were wee little people. And yet, as we go through it, there's details and there's truths that, that we completely miss or gloss over. Well, today, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to flip open to Psalm chapter 23. Psalm 23. This is an enormously popular passage in Scripture. Christians love to put this on mugs and on bookmarks, and you'll probably get it sometimes inscribed in a book that someone's giving you. Um, this is a lot of people's favorite psalm. When I was little, I was actually in Christian school, and uh, my grade 3 teacher, Miss Hallowan, uh, she had us memorize this in the old King James Version. Did anybody else have to memorize this King James style? Yeah? Okay. I'm not alone, right? Um, for a grade 3, memorizing King James is kind of like, well, it's kind of like memorizing Shakespeare. It didn't really mean a whole lot to me back then, but the words are very, very familiar. Now, in your Bibles, in all of our Bibles, it should start out something like this. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. You might have it in your Bible, a song of David. It might be a psalm by David. Regardless, this is meant to tell us that this is a psalm written by David, King David. He moves on to say, You, Lord, are my shepherd. I will never fear the need. Or for those of you who are more familiar with the old version, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Right? Does those words come back to it all? You've heard that before? Now, something happens here right off the bat. You see the word David, and we see those familiar words, and we can just kind of gloss over it, but think about who David is for a moment. We recognize David, and we're familiar with his character. We're familiar with him as the, the Bible character, that guy, the, the, the boy shepherd who slayed the giant. We know that he plays a harp. We know that later on in life he has some, some issues with women, and he has some issues with his own power and stuff like that. And we know him as a Bible character. We look on him just like we would look on characters like Joseph or, or Moses or one of the disciples. We believe that we understand David and we see a holistic picture of it. But for the Israelites, way, way back when David would have been writing this, when this original psalm would have been circulating, the Israelites didn't necessarily look on him that way. If they were alive during his time, they would have seen David as the king. That's important that we remember. We don't have a monarchy that we care about, really. I, I'm sorry if I offended you with that statement, but honestly, if, if the British monarchy disappeared tomorrow, our lives really wouldn't be affected very much. But these people saw their king as next to God. 
The next in line, this person was positioned by God to be the leader of their people. The king had the ear of God, almost like the high priest in the temple would have the ear of God. This is how the people perceived their king. The king was a mighty, mighty person. And here we have this mighty king, the mighty King David, which people sang songs about, if you remember. They said, Saul has killed his hundreds, but David has killed his thousands. Or Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his tens of thousands. They knew David as a mighty warrior. And kings in that time were always referred to as shepherds. The word was interchangeable for them. So David is a shepherd king. He is the king. And here is this mighty warrior David, this this next-to-God type person saying, the Lord is my shepherd, and he provides everything I need. He's saying, the Lord is my king, and he provides everything I need. It's a pretty amazing statement. It's a statement that gets echoed actually quite a bit in Scripture. Later on in the New Testament, Paul is writing to, to a group of people, and this is in 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, verse 9. He's writing the words of Jesus. And Jesus replied, My kindness is all you need. My power is strongest when you are weak. So, if Christ keeps giving me his power, I will gladly brag about how weak I am. This is the exact same thing. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not be in need. Christ makes me strong in my weakness. I need nothing because he makes me strong. He is my king. He is my shepherd. It's an amazing statement for a man of power to make. Now let me ask you this. Is it a true statement in your life? We'll come back to that in just a minute. Now we move on through the psalm, and one of the most striking things about it is the imagery that it presents, isn't it? Uh, you may be familiar with it, but let's just take a look. Psalm 23, verses 2 to 4. You lead me, sorry, you let me rest in fields of green grass. You lead me to streams of peaceful water, and you refresh my life. You are true to your name, and you lead me along right paths. I may walk through valleys as dark as death, but I won't be afraid. You are with me, and your shepherd's rod makes me feel safe. Beautiful imagery, isn't it? I think one of the things that it's trying to communicate is an idea, a picture, so to speak. And this is a picture of a weary wanderer, someone who's tired, who's been walking forever, needing rest, and coming to sit by still waters and green pastures, being given the rest they need, being given what they desire. This is an image that's very familiar to the Israelites. Their whole history is marked with this idea of wandering and coming to rest, right? God provides for them the promised land. He says, there is a place flowing with milk and honey that I am going to provide for you, my people, if you follow my voice and come to where I'm asking you to go. This is echoed throughout all of their history, and even though they make some serious mistakes, and they actually cause serious problems for themselves, they always cry out to God and ask for that rest. They say, God, we're wandering, we're we're not hearing you. We, we don't know where you are. Bring us back to you. And God comes through time and time again. He brings them rest. Well, I don't know if you've ever been a weary wanderer before. 
But I can tell you, quite a few years ago, I lived in Calgary, and I was working with several churches there, and we decided we were going to have an event called the 30-Hour Family. You might be familiar with this. If you're not, what it is is uh, it's a group of people coming together. They starve themselves for 30 hours so that they can understand a little bit about what children and other nations go through. You raise a lot of money to try to help out those kids, and you usually do something ridiculous and fun, um, and at the end of it, you generally have a pretty big meal to just kind of celebrate you made it all the way through the 30 hours. Um, I do this with teenagers every year. It's a lot of fun. It's a great cause. Um, and, and normally, teenagers do really, really good with it. Sometimes, you know, they start thinking of ways of, you know, killing the weak and the fat in the group and, like, roasting them because they're so hungry at that point. But it's never come to that. So I'm very, very thankful that, that we avoid those horrible, horrible things. Anyway, we, we planned this 30-hour famine. And we were living in Calgary, and we decided that we were going to host the event at Pine Lake Christian Camp, which was about two hours away. So we, we loaded up everybody, we took them out there, we did the event. The plan was that by the time we got back to Calgary, we'd drive home, um, the 30 hours would be finished, and we'd be able to have our dinner. And it was going to be great. Well, we were loading up the van after, you know, not sleeping and being hungry the whole weekend. Uh, we're loading up all the vans, and uh, I'm in my van, I'm one of the supervisors that was supposed to be in the back. And I'm looking around, I don't see a kid that, that's supposed to be in my van. So I get out of the van, and I go looking for the kid. When I come back, I discover an empty parking lot. No vans at all. And at first I think, okay guys, haha, very funny, you left me alone, that's, that's hilarious. And then as I walk around the camp a little bit and look for signs of life, I discover that no, I have been left behind. Not only that, I discover a friend of mine named Shane, who was supposed to be the leader in the other van, and he too has been left behind by doing the exact same thing that I did. It was remarkable. And so we're standing there looking at each other. We have our packs. We're hungry. We're tired. Tired's not even the right word. We were exhausted. We haven't eaten in 30 hours. And we're like, I don't know what to do now. Now, you have to understand, this is back before every single person you've ever known had a cell phone. All right? We didn't have cell phones. And even if we did, we were out in the middle of the boonies in Alberta. There's no cell reception out there especially in those days. So we didn't have a phone. All the camp was completely locked down. We didn't have keys. So even if we wanted to get at something in the camp, we couldn't have done it without causing serious damage. And I was about the fine specimen of the man that I am today. I wouldn't have been able to break a window or anything like that. Like, that just wouldn't have happened. So we didn't know what to do. So we, we kind of thought and we discussed it for a while. We decided the best plan of attack would be to walk. And we were going to walk along the road and hopefully, you know, hitchhike or, or find somebody or find some help or maybe get to a farm or something like that. Now, have you ever seen the back roads of Alberta? Let me show you a picture of what the back roads of Alberta look like. This is pretty much it. Now, now this is just some random photo I found online. Um, our place was a lot of fields but no farms, okay? I don't know what kind of agricultural system exists that you don't have farms, you just have fields. But there is nothing around that camp. It is a barren wasteland. So erase those lovely cars, or whatever that is on that side, and those houses and things like that, and just imagine that. It's just flat and empty, and there is nothing. And the closest town is about 100 kilometers away. <laughs> All right, so we start walking. We're exhausted, we're hungry, we don't have any water. Um, the, the heat of the day starts to bear down on us. You know, we've got our packs and all of our stuff. And we, we got maybe 30 or 40 kilometers. I had no idea how far we made it. Um, but there was a point where we considered just stopping and dying on the side of the road. <laughs> it's like, I can't handle this anymore. This is enough. I'm done. 
And you know, there was there was times where you come across like a puddle or something like that, and you actually entertain thoughts of like, okay, if I drink this water, how bad could dysentery really be? I mean, let's just let's just go for it, right? And then there's the thoughts of, well, I could hurt him and eat him, but then it would cause more energy. I don't know. And so we managed to get around a corner. We came around a bend around one of the hills. And there before us was the most glorious sight I'd ever seen in my entire life. There shimmering before us like a mirage was a golf course with lush green grass and sprinklers just spraying water all over everything. And there was people who seemed to be enjoying themselves and who seemed to be at rest doing something that I can't do. And there before us was our glorious salvation. And so I looked at my friend and he looked at me and he dropped his pack and he started running for one of those sprinklers. He was just going to dive in and start like drinking right from the nozzle if he could. And I was like, no, don't do that. I don't want to kick off the only thing that will help us. Uh, so I grabbed him and we went walking around. And there before us was the clubhouse. And we went into that clubhouse. Each of us had our credit card that day. And we spent way too much money. Uh, but we had our rest. Glorious air-conditioned, $23 plate served by pretty girl with a telephone rest. And it was amazing. And never before has this passage held true to me. I lead you to green pastures and still waters. That meant something significant to me that day. I was a weary wanderer. But if you think about it, our lives are kind of like that story. A little bit. Right? We are all looking for something. We're all looking for that rest. I mean, who doesn't want to have that kind of peace and that kind of rest that is, that is shown in the imagery of this song? Who doesn't want that? And we try so hard to get that rest. We go to all kinds of places to try to find that fulfillment and that peace. And I can tell you, before I knew Jesus as my shepherd, before I actually called him my shepherd and it actually meant something... I would try to find that peace in a lot of different places. I believed that all of my self-worth and all of my value belonged to the hands of someone else. I thought a relationship was the one thing that would get me to be in peace. But it wasn't, and that belief really killed me. It left me a hollow person, numb, paranoid, empty. It was terrible. To put it into the metaphor, I am a thirsty person looking for rest, looking for water, looking for peace. And we're all that person. And God warns us what happens when we try to take something else and make that be our peace, make that be our rest. He tells us in Jeremiah 2, verse 13, he's speaking to the Israelites, but I think it applies to us. You, my people, have sinned in two ways. You have rejected me, the source of life-giving water, and you've tried to collect water in cracked and leaking pits dug into the ground. He says that when we come and we try to fill our thirst, when we try to find that rest by ourselves, it's like going to a dirty mud puddle and trying to sip the water out of that and somehow being relieved by it. It's like going to ocean water when you're thirsty and trying to get something out of that. For a moment, it may satisfy, but it leaves you wanting more, and it leaves you in a worse place than you were before. And God hates it when that happens. And he says it's sinful, and I wondered, why is that sinful? And I realized 
is because when we take something that is not God, and we try to use that to bring our peace and bring our fulfillment, we are elevating that thing to a place that is reserved for God and God alone, and that's idolatry. That's worshiping something. It doesn't matter what that thing is. It could be, could be sex. It could be relationships. It could be work. It could be food. It could be whatever we use to try to fill that void, collecting stuff, whatever. Whatever we use to fill that void that is not God and try to bring our own rest, that is idolatry, and God hates it. He says that He is the source of life-giving water. He says that if we follow His voice, He brings us to still waters, to green grass. He brings us to that rest. He alone does it. If we keep going in the passage here, verses 5 and 6, the scene changes a little bit, and we start talking about what God does for us. And the psalmist says, You treat me to a feast while my enemies watch. You honor me as your guest, and you fill my cup until it overflows. Your kindness and love will always be with me each and every day of my life, and I will live forever in your house, O oh Lord. I think it's interesting, the image that we get here. And, and it's actually one of the reasons why I get really irritated with some of the imagery that, that we have a tendency to put on things like coffee mugs and, and posters and bookmarks and stuff like that. Because a lot of the times when we, we see these, these images of, of peace and, and rest and all that stuff, we kind of get the idea that God is like a mother hen. That God will just lift up his wing, like scoop us all underneath and close his wing off, like fend off all the bad guys with his other wing, or, or whatever chickens do. Um, we kind of think of God like, like a superhero who swoops in and takes out all the bad guys and leaves nothing, and so we are safe and protected and, and feeling good. But that's not really how it works. It says in this psalm that, that God protects us with his rod and his staff. But then it shows us how we're protected. In verse 5, it says that God prepares a feast for us in the presence of our enemies. Did you catch that the first time around? In the presence of our enemies, He prepares a table for us. I love action movies. I mean, I love them. Uh, one of my favorite heroes is Bruce Willis. And you put Bruce Willis in a movie, and man, it's just magic. It doesn't even matter what he does. He just looks cool doing it, and you know that he's okay. But think about any action movie you've ever seen. The hero will be standing there, there'll be like 15 or 20 guys all armed to the teeth, and your hero has like a handgun, or maybe like a, I don't know, a slingshot or something. And he's standing there, not even a little bit concerned. He'll look around and he'll do something that's supposed to be cool, like lights a cigarette, or... He makes some sort of offhand comment about the mothers or something like that. And then they all die, and he's fine. He walks away. He can even be shot ten times. He walks away, yeah, that's no problem. I'm and he, he just stands there with confidence, knowing that whatever this is that's around him, it's no problem. Because he knows something that they don't. He's the star of the movie. That's what he knows that they don't, right? His name was henchmen. They're all going to die. This is what God does for us in a very real way. 
God is not the superhero that swoops in and takes out all the bad guys. God makes us the superhero <laughs> in the situation. We're in the presence of our enemies, and He gives us the confidence. He gives us the victory to be able to stand tall and know that we are in the rest of God. That nothing can touch us. That there is no weapon that these people have, that these enemies of ours have, that can even remotely hurt us in any way that matters. We have the confidence to be able to stand there and eat a meal. Now let me ask you, if you go to, I don't know, McDonald's or something like that, you're walking down a back alley and you're surrounded by bad guys. Are you going to take a bite of your hamburger? Probably not, right? But this is what he's saying. I make you strong in your weakness. I empower you. I give you strength. If you've ever been curious about who our enemies are, it tells us explicitly in Scripture. If you look in the book of Ephesians, it tells us that we are not fighting against human beings. And I apologize if I gave that impression this morning. But our enemies are not human beings. We are fighting against forces and authorities, against rulers of darkness and the powers of the spiritual world. We are Christians and our victories are won in spirit. Our victories are won over the spiritual forces of darkness. Our victories are won over sin and, and, and Satan and demons and stuff like that. Not over people. It just boggles my mind sometimes, too, when, when Christians come to me and say that they're scared of things like demons. And it's all spooky and scary. That's not scary. We have Christ. We have God of the universe empowering us and filling us with His Spirit and saying, go into the dark world and be light. That's the power I give you. Nothing, no enemy can touch us with that power. Those are who our enemies are. And because of that victory, and because of that grace, and because of that gift, we are able to stand in the presence of God forever. He ends up this psalm by saying, I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord. Uh, in some versions you'll hear, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Because I am standing in the house of the Lord. How do we stand in the house of the Lord? How do we dwell in His presence? There's three ways that I can think of that we can do that. First of all, I think we need to start acknowledging God in our day-to-day -day lives. There's all kinds of stuff that happens to us every single day. We need to bring God into that. Think about this. Have you ever seen children laughing? That's a lot of fun, isn't it? That's God at work. That's a creative, wonderful, fun, beautiful God, creating laughter and joy. That's God. Have you ever been stuck in traffic? Acknowledge the absence of God in people's lives. Maybe your own. I know when that road rage bubbles up, that's not God. That's the absence of God bubbling up in you. Bring God into that. Standing in line at the grocery store, and the person at the front is trying to figure out how much 75 cents is, and they've got like everything out on the counter and they can't do it, and you're standing there and you're losing patience, stop for a moment and pray for the people in line. Don't pray that the lady speeds up. <laughs> pray for the people in line who don't know who God is. 
It'll change your perspective. Something else we can do, we can go to church as often as we can. Unfortunately, a very common question that I get asked is, why should I go to church? Why does it matter? If I believe in God, can I worship Him from home? Can I turn on the TV and see some sort of church service there? Like, yeah, right, you're going to watch church on TV? Why do we go to church? It's because we have been given this gift. We call the Lord our shepherd, and we shall want for nothing. That's a declaration we make as Christians. And when you go to church, you are able to see other people who have made that exact same declaration. And you're able to stand before God together and to enjoy the presence of the Lord together and to see that you are not alone. And that's an amazing gift. You know, sometimes I think we forget that in the Old Testament, the Israelites didn't have that option. Sometimes they would go years before they were able to go to the temple where the presence of God was. And then they didn't get to walk up to God and, and present themselves to God. They had to give stuff to a priest, and the priest would take it to the high priest, and the high priest would go in and see God on your behalf. And that only happened once a year. We get to stand before God in His presence constantly. He has put His Spirit on us and in us so that we can know Him and stand before Him and call Him Father. That is an incredible gift. And that's a gift that we get to do together. Church is an amazing, amazing gift from God. Go as much as you can. Get as much of it as you can. Because it's an incredible, incredible gift. And finally, the last way that we can dwell in the presence of God is by serving Him. That means going out and doing things that He has asked us to do. Normally, if someone comes to me and says something to the effect of, I, I don't know, I just can't feel the presence of God. 99% of the time, it's because we're not doing anything for Him. We do lots of stuff for ourselves, but we don't do enough for God. When was the last time that you went out and just did something for God? Went to, went to serve dinner to someone or invited some strangers over so that you could get to know them and maybe somehow um, in the future speak into their lives a little bit? When was the last time that, that you volunteered for something? Um, volunteered for ministry in the church or, or even outside the church? It doesn't have to be our thing. When was the last time you did something that was just for God? Because when we serve other people, we take the focus off ourselves and we put it squarely on God because when we're in the unknown, when we get into things that we don't know and the unfamiliar, the only person we have to rely on is God. And that's why He asks us to do these things. And so when we're doing that, we can experience God and we can know who He is. If you want a way to, to get involved, we have lots of ways that we can get involved. I encourage you after today is done, don't, don't just go out and, and ignore everything I said and not do anything. That could be the worst thing you could do. Go out and get involved. Do something else. Do something new. And I can suggest a lot of things that you can do. Or if you're not comfortable with me, go and talk to, to our senior pastor, Greg, or our other associate, James. Uh, we have lots of things that you can do where we can point you in the right direction. We want to get people serving. We want to get people dwelling in the house of God forever. I'm going to read this psalm one last time. I'm reading it out of the New International Version. And I want this to kind of resonate as a prayer. So just reflect on this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord.